We're going to go ahead and get started. This is a very special occasion with a very special table. Frank and Barb are having their 33rd wedding anniversary. Where else to celebrate? You could go on a cruise or you could do Golden Beer Talks. Something like that. Nice. So this very special table is an auction item that Frank and Barb and Matt and Yoko purchased when we did our fundraising auction last year. So what that looks like is a whirlwind of auctioneering activity that occurs in a few short minutes before our talk in November and you get an opportunity at your own chosen price to have your own very special table. This looks innocent, but it includes not only the accoutrements you see, but the beer and the food. So it's something to think about for November because we will be having a very special auction of very special tables. Free beer? Dr. Dale is... Yes. Well, only with the table. Oh, the Well, and for the auctioneer. The auctioneer will be lubed up. Yes, the auctioneer, Dr. Dale. <laughs> if we have anything to do about it. Tonight is actually the third anniversary of Golden Beer Talks as well. So three years strong, which is really cool. There are a lot of people to thank for that. Four of them are right here at this table. Also, Bart over here on the soundboard, Dr. Dale over here, the Windy Saddle staff, and uh, Golden.com. If you haven't been to the Golden.com website, it is worth your time. You can learn a whole lot about what's going on around town, but you can also sign up for some email newsletters that will keep you apprised with no effort of your own. They just appear in your inbox. And they're newsy and bright and filled with photos. It's really worth your effort. So I recommend that, Golden.com. They always treat us just right. And... For next month, we have an awesome speaker. We're doing Avalanche Safety, very timely, coming November. The second Tuesday in November, you probably heard about it, there's an election. So we're going to have beer talks the following week on the 15th instead of on election night. And you'll, that'll be in our emails that we send out as well, but just a, just a notification that we're not going to fight the tide of election night. Beer would help on election night. <laughs> oh! Let me get it straight. I am recommending that you do drink beer that night. <laughs> I want to be really clear about that. <laughs> Whatever happens. And so we hope you, that we do see you. And um, I'm going to get our beer ambassador to come on up here and talk about our beer offerings tonight from our new brewery, as well as our speaker tonight. Come on up, and beer ambassador Frank Blaha. All right, well, thank you all very much for coming to the third anniversary of Golden Beer Talks. And uh, this year, or this month, our featured brewery is New Terrain Brewing. And for those of you not familiar with it, it is the newest craft brewery in Golden, for sure, probably in the state. They opened on October 1st, and they are located at 16401 Table Mountain Parkway in Golden. And they're open from noon to 9 p.m. every day. And that location is the Coors Industrial Park out by, like, 44th and McIntyre. So if you go out, if you start on 9th Street, is that 10th? And it becomes 44th, and you cross the railroad tracks right there by Coors. Then you go by the Railroad Museum. Then you cross the railroad tracks again. Then take a left and go up, and they're on, on the hill on your left. And it's a beautiful facility. They are the largest, they have the largest um, serving room of all of the craft breweries in Golden. I mean, put three of the others together and it would be this size. It's a beautiful facility. They've got great views out the windows. They have copious outdoor seating and indoor seating. And I was there on October 1st on their opening day and it was absolutely jammed. And there were lots of young families there, like, you know, what I perceived to be mom, dad, and the couple of, you know, two, three, and four-year-olds. So there was quite a young crowd. I think I doubled the age of the people that were in the, in, in the brewery that day. And there were long lines. They had two lines to get your beer, and they were both really long. Uh, but it was a very grand, grand opening. And it's a very grand facility. It's, it's really very nice. And it's very close to the Fairmont Trail and the trail that goes by Tony Gramps' park. So uh, they've got uh, hitching rails for your horse. My horse found it quite acceptable last night. I, I rode her there last night. 
um, and bicycles and so on and so forth are all right there. And they also have a little bicycle facility in their uh, building there, kind of a showroom for bikes you can buy, but not right off the showroom. Like you can look at what they've got, and it's uh, a family relation. So there's the uh, bike tie in there, and the trails are very close. Um, they're going to have a, a handful of standard brews on tap, such as amber ales, brown ales, IPAs, etc. But they're also going to do a, a number of adventurous brews, and so the name of the brewery, New Terrain. They're going to try new terrain and you know try new and different things. Uh, they've got two brewing systems. One's a 10-barrel system. The other, the other is a 30-barrel system. They've got two fermenters for the 30-barrel system, which is going to be kind of their standard brews, you know, the... IPAs and the brown ales, and then they've got four fermenters with the 10-barrel system where they're going to try more experimental brews, such as Hopatropica, which we had last night, which was a hoppy pale ale, not an IPA, so it wasn't real bitter. It was like 35 or 40 IBUs, and, uh, but it was quite fruity, you know, lots of uh, mango and um, uh, citrusy flavors, so lots of hops, as you might guess from the title. Of, or the name. Um, they are already at Woody's on tap, and they're going to expand their availability with time. They are already canning beer in 32-ounce cans. So that's a pretty big can. That's two pints. It's a two-pint can. Um, and they're going to, uh, they intend to have a 12-ounce canning line operative in the first quarter of 2017. Um, last night they had 10 beers on tap. Uh, and they had a few, al- in addition to that, they had a few alternative non beer brews like coffee, uh, kombucha, etc., you know, uh, some sodas and stuff. Um, it is a beautiful facility. I urge you to go there. It was really very nice. Their outdoor seating was just first rate. And um, uh, they're friendly to all forms of transportation, including four legged. So, with that, I'm done. I'm not going to talk about the Great American Beer Festival or anything else since we're getting a late start. So I will introduce, though, our speaker tonight, Jason Hansen, who's third time returning for our third anniversary here at Golden Beer Talks. And he's the Director of Interpretation and Research at History Colorado. And he facilitates the exhibit program for the History Colorado Center in downtown Denver and at community museums around the state. So do you do Fort Garland? Uh, yeah. Okay. And there are cavalry reenactors who are routinely down at Fort Garland. And with that, Jason Hansen with History Colorado. Thanks, everyone. I set my books up here, sorry. There's a pumpkin. There's a pumpkin. All right. So... First of all, thank you for having me to uh, Golden Beer Talks for a third time. I have not been making it a secret that this is one of my favorite uh, sort of extracurricular things to do. I love the idea of communities getting together over beer and food and and, uh, talking, uh, making new friends, learning a little something, hopefully. Um, So I'm really happy to be a part of it. I am flattered to be here for the third anniversary. Um, I am looking forward to next month in case anyone feels the need to uh, head for the mountains after the election. That seems like it's going to be really valuable. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I'm, I live in Denver. I, I work in Denver now. I don't get up to Golden as often as I like. And uh, every time I come up here, I'm reminded Golden has a, a ton going on. I mean, three years of Golden Beer Talks. That's great. New breweries like New Terrain and others that seem to be open. Every time I get up here, there's a new place someone's saying you got to try. Um, and now you guys are, it looks like, um, well, you're at least talking about having a beer museum here in Golden, which is uh, pretty exciting. Um, at History Colorado, we are planning a beer exhibit, which is uh, different from having a whole museum that you can walk through with, with beer in hand. We probably won't let you take beers into the gallery. Um, so I think it's, it's really exciting that uh, you guys are talking about a beer museum up here, and, and I've uh, told the uh, Golden Historical Society that I'm happy to help. Um, all right. So we are here today to talk about home brewing. Um, I've, I've talked about uh, beer 
before Prohibition in Colorado, the last time I was here. Before that, I talked about water, which is, of course, the, um, you know, water, when it's lucky, ends up becoming beer. So there is a, a theme. Uh, so tonight we're going to talk about homebrewing. And homebrewing uh, is something that Americans have been doing since long before they were actually Americans. Um, when faced with the choice of going without or brewing their own, uh, people in this part of the world have 100% of the time chosen to hoist a glass of homebrew and uh, make sure that they were not thirsty. People always ask this, so I'm just going to quickly note. Um, there were some native groups that brewed beverages that were fermented that had beer-like qualities, but beer is as we recognize it today, like the delicious Saison here, um, did not arrive in the New World until uh, Europeans arrived in the New World. Beer is a, is a European drink. Um, the first home brewers were colonists. Uh, Colonists were dumped off here by the Virginia Company with uh, insufficient provisions, and they were uh, not resupplied often enough. And when they were resupplied, their ration did include beer, which was, I mean, it sounds great, but it was kind of a tease because the beer was almost always spoiled swill that was, was undrinkable. So the first home brewers uh, in America were colonists operating out of... Um, the backs of their uh, cabins or the backs of their shops um, in Virginia and, and later in New York, um, supplying a local need. Um, they were not able to get all of the ingredients that they might have been used to brewing with in, in Europe, and so they got inventive. And the first pumpkin beers and uh, pine needle beers and molasses beers uh, were, were actually brewed by these colonists. Uh, 400 years later, today's craft brewers would be really proud of some of the recipes that they invented just to get by uh, back in the day. Uh, in fact, um, most, a lot of people know this, but for those of you who don't, George Washington was actually a home brewer, and uh, his recipe uh, that he wrote down in his um, campaign journal in the 1750s is... is uh, part of the collection at the New York Public Library, so you can actually uh, read how George Washington liked his... He made small beer, which was a term then for a lower alcohol beer that you could just drink all day long. And um, uh, General Washington liked his beer dark, and he liked it sweet, so he added an awful lot of molasses to the boil um, to, uh, to make his beer. Uh, but people made beer out of anything, and in fact... Um, one colonist in Virginia, when he was uh, sort of looking at the interruption of uh, possible supply from Europe with the revolution looming in 1775, published a recipe for taking the green corn stalks of recently harvested corn and turning that into beer. Um, so the colonists, they were inventive. They, uh, no, one, no one that I know has tried to reproduce this uh, corn stalk beer, so I couldn't tell you if it's any good, but... Uh, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> if, if anyone's really interested, I, can, I uh, know how to get you the recipe. Um, but it, you have to use the green corn stalks, I think, within 10 days of their harvest. Uh, it's, it's very important that they're green, not the, the Halloween stuff that's in the fields right now. Um, so fast forward a little bit to our part of the country, to people coming west. And Western brewers were in the same boat as the colonists. They did not have sufficient uh, supply, let's say, to, uh, to brew the kind of beer that they might have been used to brewing. Um, and the, the people who might have wanted beer didn't have uh, a way to get it. Um, beer at that time did not ship well. Uh, this is before pasteurization, and uh, it often spoiled. You put beer on a wagon train headed west, and it didn't take long before it became a spoiled swill. And so they had to get creative again. Um, and uh, there's a recipe for mountain man beer that involves uh, boiling essence of spruce to replace the hops. And that means uh, that you take some a handful of spruce needles, boil them down, take out those spruce needles, keep the same water, have another handful of spruce needles, boil it down, repeat the process three times, 
and use that as your hop substitute with, with a grain. Um, and that uh, was sufficient. If you were out trapping beaver in the middle of uh, the Rocky Mountains and really wanted a beer, just were so tired of the same damn rock gut whiskey, <laughs> that was how you got your beer. Um, some miners in Colorado did try growing their own hops. And uh, if you're lucky when you're hiking about, um, you can still find wild hop vines up in the mountains um, that are just uh, propagating over and over again. Uh, they snake along the ground, I guess. And um, it would be, I have never found one. I've just been told about these. But I think it would be very cool to find some of those old miners' hop vines and, and brew out of them. Um, the first beer in the West was home-brewed. It was actually camp-brewed. Um, it was the Lewis and Clark expedition. And in uh, 1805, they were in Oregon. And uh, one of the many times that their canoe or their boat got uh, swamped, um, all of the bread got waterlogged. And they were cursing their fate for a little while until one of the crew uh, <laughs> had the bright idea to uh, use that bread as the um, feedstock for beer, which he made. We don't really have any idea of how it tasted. We do know that this is a way that people have made beer in other civilizations for uh, really uh, millennia. Um, but I think we can all guess that if you had been traveling across the country in a boat for a year and a half and you got your first beer since leaving St. Louis, it would have tasted pretty great. I'm, I'm just going to guess pretty great on the beer front um, for Lewis and Clark. But that was the first beer brewed in the West. Um, around the time that mining rushes start bringing white settlers to the West, that's when we start to see um, commercial brewing operations pop up. We see that because uh, you need a viable population to sell your beer to before it spoils. Uh, if you're, if you're going to brew beer in commercial quantities, you like we said, we can't ship it out on a wagon train. You've got you to have a population right there to drink it. And so it's really mineral rushes that uh, bring enough beer drinkers into the territory to, uh, to, to start drinking. Uh, Colorado's first beer was brewed within a year of Denver being founded in 1859. Um, a homebrew and miner teamed up with a merchant who had the capital to uh, buy the supplies, and they... Uh, they created a beer that the first drinkers remember as being, quote, innocent of hops. Um, <laughs> which makes sense if you had to bring your hops from upstate New York all the way out here to, to Colorado in 1859. You would use the bare minimum that you could get by with and still call it beer because you wanted to keep making that beer and keep selling that beer. Um, all right, so we all know uh, pasteurization came along. Advances in bottling technology meant that the crown cap, which is still the, the cap that we basically put on our beer bottles today, allowed for beer to be packaged for individual consumption. You didn't have to go to the saloon anymore and drink it out of a keg. You could take it home and enjoy it. Um, and transportation networks were getting better and better, and, and uh, it became viable for someone in... Uh, the mountains of Colorado or Oregon or uh, at really anywhere in the country to uh, enjoy a pretty decent beer. And uh, home brewing wasn't really as necessary as it used to be heading into the, to the 20th century. And then along comes prohibition. And it's a whole... Yeah, exactly. Boo. It's a whole new form of scarcity. It's, it's not... Scarcity because you're out on the, the frontier. It's scarcity because of some law that is preventing you from, from getting what you want. And in the tried and true American way, people did not let it stand in the way of a good beer. Um, <laughs> there was, a, there was a, a widespread belief that the government might care if you had a still in your basement. But nobody was going to care if you brewed a little beer and, and drank it with your friends. And that seems, by and large, to have been the case. Nobody really cared. Um, Colorado, for complex and disappointing reasons, went dry four years before the rest of the country in 1916. Um, but in one of what was surely the, the most inviting, uh, or the, the strongest invitations to home brewers ever passed into law, it was not illegal to have alcohol in your house 
it was only illegal to buy it from elsewhere. And so uh, for, those, for those first four years, um, Coloradans uh, took to homebrewing. There's a great story from the steamboat pilot in, in 1917. A man in a, a coal camp there, the Mount Harris coal camp nearby, uh, some, some, federal, or some state revenue agents came to visit him uh, because they had heard that um, he, was, uh, he was making a lot of beer. And their complaint was not that he was making beer. They did not dispute his right to be making this beer. What they disputed was even acknowledging his abnormal consumptive capacity, a barrel a day seemed like too much. <laughs> and they figured he had to be selling it. And that's what gets you into trouble as a home brewer, is uh, selling it. Um, more on that in, in a few minutes. Uh, suffice to say that prohibition was, was so wide, or that um, homebrewing was so widespread during prohibition that uh, Augie Bush Jr. of uh, Budweiser fame um, wrote at the uh, end of prohibition as, as repeal was, was in the wind um, with a little bit of jealousy, I think, if, if you can hear the tone of his voice in, in, in the ink there, that um, homebrewing had been the great indoor sport of Americans since 1920. And uh, uh, he wasn't sure that the commercial brewers could get their market share back. Um, so prohibition was repealed in 1933. Hooray! Um, but for home brewers, the prohibition actually didn't end. Home brewing did not become legal when uh, alcohol in general became legal in America. Uh, but with commercially brewed beer still available, Augie Bush's concerns about market share sort of evaporated. Most people seemed to have stowed their homebrew kits down in the basement and were perfectly happy drinking uh, the professional stuff. Um, in 1933, America had 703 breweries that uh, opened up again after repeal. Um, over the next four decades to the end of the 1970s, that number dwindled to 44. So from 703 to 44. Uh, out here, of course, we know who the brewery was. Coors was king, um, and it wasn't just in Colorado. Coors only distributed its beer in 11 states through the 60s and 70s, and it was the number one beer in all of those states almost every year. They rode the uh, population boom that happened in the West uh, more generally to become the fourth largest brewery in the country, even though they're only distributing in about a fifth of the states. Um, and what Coors was making, the uh, famous pale American lager, um, was what almost everyone else was making too. This, this light lager was calibrated. Um, after Prohibition, the brewers were not only sure that they couldn't get their market share back, but they um, rather unfairly had blamed uh, women and their right to vote for Prohibition in the first place. And so they uh, tried to calibrate their beers to be more appealing to women across a broader spectrum. And what they found, they thought, was that women liked these light American lagers, and so everyone was making them. And the 44 breweries that were left, almost all of them were making primarily this, this pale American lager that, that we all know and love today. Um, but it was scarcity of a different form, right? For some people who wanted something besides a pale American lager, uh, it felt like scarcity. They couldn't get what they wanted. And so, tried and true American fashion, they turned to brewing their own again. Um, in the 1960s is when we really started to, to see this trend, if you will, become, become a trend. Um, and people came to it for different reasons. A lot of them were former GIs who had served overseas during World War II or Cold War deployments came back home to new formulations of suburban life and, and uh, domestic contentment and want, of course, and wanted, uh, wanted some of the beer styles that they had tasted abroad and found that they couldn't get them, so they decided to make their own. Um, others were foodies. This is the moment when California cuisine becomes, uh, launches the foodie movement that we all know today. And these were people who thought, well, if good food is good, good beverages would be good too, 
and they started making their own beers as an extension of uh, that enhanced mealtime experience. Um, and then finally, some of them were just hippies who were totally into growing their own, and uh, they wanted to stick it to the man and weren't going to drink Augie Bush's corporate swill anyway, so they, uh, they brewed at home because it was, it was real beer. Um, I didn't plan this out very well, so I have to switch pages here. Um, all right. So no matter the reasons that they started homebrewing, um, homebrewers were, were most visible out west here in Coors Country. Um, and that's not my mistake, and it's not a slight against Coors. It's because the west was attracting new residents who were coming here to pursue uh, a vision of a uh, high quality of life that you could find in the West. Um, no longer were people moving here just because of the natural resources that fueled the economy. Uh, those natural resources, those, those snow-capped peaks and, and uh, 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 snow-capped peaks that might be mines to an earlier generation or, or the forests of the Pacific Northwest that might look like uh, great timber jobs to an earlier generation natural resources got turned into natural amenities, and people wanted to live among those amenities and pursue that high quality of life. And part of that high quality of life was drinking better beer for a lot of them. Um, one of those people, uh, some of you may know, was Charlie Papazian. Uh, he moved here from Virginia. Uh, he moved to Boulder in the uh, early 70s. Um, in large part because he really liked to camp and he wanted to live close to the mountains. Uh, he started teaching homebrewing classes because he'd enjoyed homebrewing in Virginia, and uh, people told him in Boulder, oh, your beer is so good. Will you teach me how to make it? And he, so he started teaching homebrew classes. And uh, he talks about this moment um, in the 19, uh, 1974, he thought. The, the memory was a little hazy, but uh, a man in a shirt and tie showed up to register for Charlie's homebrew class. And Boulder in 1974, as you might imagine, was not a button-down shirt sort of town. Um, and uh, so it was weird enough that the, the uh, people who he was working with warned Charlie, there's this weird dude taking your class. Um, and Charlie said, yeah, he's probably an ATF agent, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Bureau agent. Uh, but Charlie went ahead and uh, taught the class anyway. And he said the, the guy came to the first three or four classes. He rolled up his sleeves. He kept his tie on. And he uh, pitched in, making a few batches of beer. And then he didn't show up again after three or four classes. And uh, whether he was a, a federal agent or simply a Boulderite with a really uh, highly tailored sense of fashion, Charlie never knew. But uh, uh, he had to, it, it points out he had to be on the lookout for um, G-men, if, if you want to call them that, treasury agents. Uh, uh, and that, that's part of that uh, uh, prohibition never ended for home brewers. Um, the reason prohibition never ended for home brewers, uh, well, the reason that home brewing was ever a concern of the federal government, actually, let's back up just a second. The reason that alcohol is ever a concern of the federal government is because of the taxes, like most things. Um, for most of American history, homebrew was treated like food. And uh, as long as you made it at home and drank it at home, it was basically the same as baking a loaf of bread. But uh, as soon as you started to sell that beer, just like if you were selling your bread, um, the government wanted a, a cut. Um, the history of taxing alcohol in America goes back to the 1790s when Alexander Hamilton proposed paying off the Revolutionary War debt by taxing whiskey. Um, the uh, corn growers in Pennsylvania didn't like that idea. It resulted in the Whiskey Rebellion. And uh, George Washington, who himself, a brewer, um, led the army out to put down the rebellion. And uh, that was the last time, incidentally, that a uh, president has actually been at the head of the army. Um, <laughs> That's right. That's right. It was an important principle. Um, tax on beer appears in uh, the Civil War. 
Um, the union imposed a dollar per barrel tax on brewers, and most brewers, being uh, Germans at the time, were happy to pay it to show their support for the union. Um, but that tax never went away. They were promised that it would go away after the war, and, and guess what happened? It didn't go away. Um, and so homebrewing was fine uh, from the Civil War to uh, really up to Prohibition, and, unless you sold it. If you were selling it, you were cheating. Uh, you weren't paying the taxes that commercial brewers had to pay, and so the government didn't really get involved. And that's why it's always been treasury agents that are charged with enforcing um, alcohol regulations. Prohibition changed it from a, a tax issue into just an illicit potion. You, you can't have it. It's, um, and it became very black and white. Uh, you just can't have it. Um, and so when Charlie comes along in Boulder and is teaching his classes, uh, it's illegal. But the ATF is showing up, maybe, and uh, is looking the other way because Charlie is telling people, don't sell it and you won't get in trouble. And as long as that's the message that Charlie is giving out publicly, they didn't seem to, to feel like bothering him. Charlie wasn't alone. There were other people out there. One of them was Fred Eckhart. Um, I brought this. Uh, just so you can see, I don't, we can pass this around if you want. This is the very first um, homebrewing manual published on this side of the Atlantic since before Prohibition. Um, Fred Eckhart was a former Marine who had been abroad, who moved back to Portland, Oregon, and uh, wanted to brew the types of beers that he had enjoyed overseas. Uh, he really enjoyed lagers, and he put his mind to it and uh, figured out how to brew some pretty good lagers and then wrote a treatise on lager beer. Um, He's got this great handlebar mustache and a beret. Um, I'll just put this on the table. We can pass it around if you want, or you can come up and look at it at the break. Shortly after him, Byron Birch writes a guidebook for the, or quality brewing, a guidebook for the home production of fine beers. And uh, Byron Birch, who was living in the San Francisco Bay Area at the time, he includes some recipes on ale. So if you are lucky enough in the 1970s to have copies of both of these books, the whole beer world is open to you. But otherwise, it's all, you're, you're trying to brew based on word of mouth and grandpa's recollections from, the pro, from prohibition. And, and, uh, and so both of these guys were pushing for legalization. They said, nobody's going to hassle you. The enforcement is pretty non-existent. But if home brewing were legalized, we could actually get good ingredients. We could, uh, you know, have public classes and teach people how to do this. Um, and uh, a guy named Merlin Elhard in suburban Los Angeles uh, takes him up on it, takes these guys up on it. Uh, Merlin runs a homebrew club called the Maltos Falcons. Um, <laughs> it's the first homebrew club that we know of um, there may have been others, but they were clandestine, and, and we don't know about them. Um, but the Maltos Falcons uh, come out into the open because they want to convince California Senator Alan Cranston to, uh, to push for legalization of homebrewing. And in uh, 1978, he does just that. He introduces a bill to make homebrewing just like uh, brewing wine at home, which had been legalized with prohibition. So it was only beer, and he thought, that's unfair. We should change that. Um, and forever, the, uh, the homebrewing community had thought that the story that had been passed down was that uh, it had just been an oversight, a clerical error, that uh, in the repeal legislation, um, they had, the clerk had forgotten the words and beer in legalizing other forms of making alcohol at home. Um, and, and if that had been the case, it surely would have been unfair. But it turned out that the federal government was actually concerned uh, they were worried about the wart. Um, that uh, they were worried that home brewing, that if you took the, the wart and instead of brewing with it, instead of adding hops and, and turning it into beer, you could distill it and make moonshine. And uh, they were worried that home brewers were going to do that. So they proposed, the, the uh, ATF um, proposed, fine, we will let home brewing be legalized. But all homebrewers must register, and you can only have 30 gallons on hand at a time. Um, and Alan Cranston said, no, that's dumb. 
that those were his exact words. Um, <laughs> uh, he said that um, we should make this just like uh, home winemaking, and home winemakers are allowed 200 gallons of beer or of wine at home. And yes, they do. They did have to register, but that registration costs more of, in paperwork than they were actually providing in the form of registration fees. So let's do away with the res- registration. And that was the legislation that was passed out of Congress and sent to Jimmy Carter's desk. And Jimmy Carter was a famous teetotaler who did not drink when he was the president. Uh, but in uh, October 1978, he saw the light and signed the legislation legalizing home brewing in America in 1978. It actually became legal to brew in America in 1979, uh, just uh, like a few weeks before I was born, um, which uh, I know, I know. Um, it makes me feel like this was my destiny. Um, all right, so federal legalization you would think the deal's done, right? But actually, the way uh, alcohol law works in America, the jurisdiction is all with the states. So the federal government was basically saying, we won't stand in the way of this. But states, it's still up to you what you want to do. And uh, it was a state-by-state process. It happened in a, in a couple of phases. First, there were a remarkable number of states who had legalized home brewing even when it was illegal at the federal level. Um, states like Washington and Oregon had legalized it with repeal, and, right? Um, yeah, we can, we can talk about the weed comparisons in the question and answer period. Um, uh, but Washington, Oregon, California, surprisingly, Nebraska and Kansas uh, legalized it ahead of time, uh, Massachusetts, Wisconsin. I have a map in this, if anyone is really, really interested in the order in which the legalization occurred, um, I have this handy-dandy map here that will show you. This is soon to be an illustrated GIF and, uh, on Zymergy's website, if you're all members of the AHA. Um, there were a couple of other states that defaulted to federal law, basically saying, whatever the federal law is, we'll go along with that. Um, Montana, Nevada, Arizona, New York, Ohio, states of that nature. And then there were states where we actually had to fight through uh, the legislature to get it passed. Um, And those were states that you would expect, um, you know, Texas, Utah, uh, a number of, most of the South, actually. Um, And, surprisingly, Colorado. Um, Not until 1986 did homebrewing become officially legal in Colorado, despite the fact that... uh, in 1978, right after Carter had signed the legislation, uh, Charlie Papazian and his friend Charlie Matson had launched uh, the American Homebrewers Association in Boulder and uh, started publishing Zymer and G mag- magazine. Um, finally, in 2013, Alabama and Mississippi joined the party, and <laughs> homebrewing is now legal in all 50 states with a few dry county exceptions here and there. But uh, by and large, you can, you can brew in, in anywhere you happen to live. Um, a lot of those, the home brewers, you know, they came out into the light. A lot of them became our early craft brewers. That is a, a connection that has strengthened over time. Um, in this uh, journal here, some economists and I did some analysis. And when I say we did it, I mean, they did it. There's very fancy math involved that I don't understand. But uh, (laughs) they proved for the first time what had always been anecdotal, that places that had a legal home brewing scene uh, tend to have the strongest craft brewing industries uh, today. Um, So it's it's a strong argument for home brewing. It brings us a long way from those early colonists who... Uh, just were brewing at the back of their cabins because the spoiled swill that they were getting from Britain was was not even fit to feed to their pigs. Um, uh, to today, when home brewers are driving innovation in our craft brewing industry and uh, doing things um, like opening up new terrain brewing uh, here in Golden, where they're promising all kinds of, of inventive things that uh, we haven't even thought of yet. Um, so I'll leave you... Uh, 
with two facts. Um, one, sorry, I just don't want to be holding that. One, uh, we live in the right place. <laughs> Colorado has over 300 breweries. Um, we can try more styles of beer than the average human being at any time in history could have tried in their lifetimes, um, and we can do that all on like a weekend brewery tour. Um, uh, the West in general is the right place. We have 23% of the population in between the Rocky Mountains and the Pacific Coast, but we have 40% of the breweries. Um, the Rocky Mountain region leads the nation in per capita breweries. Um, we have more breweries per person around here than, than anyone else in really the world is, is fortunate enough to have. Um, all of which is to say that from the time that those colonists uh, in the 1500s started uh, brewing here in the New World um, to today, uh, things have come a long way. And we can thank homebrewers for the fact that any beer that advertises itself solely based on how long it's been around probably tastes boring to us today. It's, uh, the flavor profiles have gone in so many different dimensions that it's, uh, it's a whole new era for beer. And it's all thanks to home brewing. So with that, I will, um, I think I went on a little long. Sorry, I wasn't looking at my watch. But uh, I will, uh, you guys are free to stand up and walk around and get more beer. You should get more beer. The Saison is good. Um, should I take a break or should we just go straight to questions? Okay. We're going to take a little break, get more beer, so you're ready to fire questions at me. I don't think it's, there we go. There we go. We're going to get those questions ready. You got to be fast on the draw. Get ready to stick that hand up. Here we go, Jason. Time for some Q and A. I don't know, right? I'm going to do this beer in hand, and if this beer gets empty, I'm going to get another one. So it'll get more exciting as the night goes on. Um, but does anyone have any questions about home brewing or life or anything else? <gasps> Cindy does. Sure, I I can try. Um, so there's obvious similarities in the way that uh, the states have sort of gone out in front of the federal government in some cases uh, to legalize. Um, I have friends who are weed historians who have... <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Being a beer historian used to be the coolest job on campus, and then uh, weed historian became a thing. Um, <laughs> Uh, I have friends who are weed historians who um, caution against drawing too direct a parallel um, between the, you know, it's a political question more than it is anything else. And uh, beer had a completely different history than cannabis has. Um, so when it was legalized, it was a return to uh, something that was still within living memory. Um, it was uh, uh, something that was part of cultural ceremony. Um, I'm not saying that there are not those things about uh, marijuana, but it's, it's a different substance. It's got a different history. It's got different uh, associations and definitely different politics around it at the time. So, or at this time. So uh, there's a lot of similarity, I think, in the way that states sort of push the federal government. Um, but... I wouldn't say that the legalization of home brewing is a template for the legalization of uh, weed nationwide. Yes, sir. How, can you tell us how to make beer in particular if I had some wet bread? How I make <laughs> yeah. So uh, the Sumerians are actually credited with inventing this process of soaking their beer. You let it ferment. You add, uh, uh, well, you, you boil it, you let it ferment, you add whatever you want to add. If you're in Samaria, you added honey and, and uh, other things. If you're in uh, the middle of the forest in Oregon, they probably added pine needles. Um, and you let some wild yeast blow into it and wait a little while for the magical alchemy that um, at the time uh, nobody understood yeast, so nobody really understood uh, beer. Um, 
I take that back. People are starting to understand yeast uh, in, in um, 1805 for Lewis and Clark, but nobody understood it for the Sumerians, which was the model for this. Um, so the answer is let your bread soak and spoil, ferment, add some stuff to it, uh, wait a little while, and then drink it and see if you like it. Um, and to be totally serious, um, there are anthropologists out there who argue that a process similar to that is actually what led our forebears uh, to um, stop their nomadic ways and settle down uh, to uh, into villages and, and agricultural lifestyles. Uh, they, the theory is that uh, some wild grains that had been picked and stored got wet. Um, that they fermented, that people came back to get them and thought, we can't really let this go to waste even though it's kind of gross and wet, and they ate them, and they liked how they felt. (laughs) (laughs) And then they thought, how can we do this again? And then they thought, how can we grow this stuff? And then they thought, well, are there ways of storing it so that we can do this whenever we want to? And on and on from there. it made sense to start cultivating fields of, of grains and, and turning them into delicious beverages. Um, and just to get even further off topic here, um, there are anthropologists who argue that uh, while there are many factors that led to um, the lengthening of the human lifespan uh, once people started to settle down and live in, in agricultural settings, uh, that one of them was quite possibly the notion that if you drink a little bit of uh, a fermented beverage, um, that it lowers your stress level, that you're, you're l- less worried about being uh, killed. Uh, <laughs> you know, you're less worried about whatever animal coming out of the, the dark and eating you in your sleep, and that frees up brain power for creative thought, that you can then start to imagine new ways of living, new ways of building, new ways of growing, new ways of, of doing just about anything. And, and so alcohol plays a key role. If you are a certain anthropologist, alcohol plays a key role in, uh, in human history. Yes, sir. So have you uh, heard any anecdotes about border wars between states? I actually, like 50 years ago, I lived on the border of Massachusetts and New Hampshire, and there was this bizarre thing. They had their laws, they had their laws. And they ended up opening right on the border this place where you could go brew your own homebrew. Six beautiful <laughs> animals, all the ingredients you could ever imagine. You just came in and brewed your own whatever you wanted. No, I haven't heard anything. That's awesome. I mean, usually the sort of... <laughs> the interstate stuff is usually smuggling, you know, beer into the state, not That's allowing people to come and brew their own. That's cool. Between what states again? Massachusetts and New Hampshire. I'll have to, I'll have to look that up. Um, that's cool. And I didn't know anything about that. Yes, sir. All right, I've got two questions. <laughs> Shoot. First, you mentioned the Crown Catholic. Uh huh. When was that introduced? What year? Oh, God. Don't ask me for the exact year. 1870s. Really? Maybe 80s. Yeah. I've got a picture. Hold on, hold on. Probably gradually replaced like corks and wait Yeah, it was uh, before that. Um, there were bottled beers, but they were corked and uh, very, very unsatisfactory as a way to keep the beer carbonated for long periods of time. Um, this is a copy of Journal of the West from this summer. Um, uh, before I left CU to go to History Colorado, I managed to convince the editors of this uh, publication to let me guest edit a journal all about the history of beer in the West. Um, and so we got some uh, great historians here. Elliot West writes an article, if you're familiar with he's. I would give, so like, you should all get a copy of this. Um, because it's a scholarly journal, it's kind of a pain to get... Um, <laughs> Uh, but please do go uh, buy out all their copies. What the hell is this? Um, there we go. So I have right here one of the early uh, 
capping machines, capping and bottling machines. I'll pass this around. Um, that's what it took. Oh my God. <laughs> Here, go ahead and, go ahead and share. Um, so that's a, a friend of mine down at Metro uh, put together a couple of photos because, you know, thousand word equivalency and all that. And uh, we couldn't get all the stories in uh, to uh, the journal. So things like uh, the crown cap ended up as a photo. Um, 1870s or 80s is the answer to your question. Second question. Yes, sir. Um, so in a lot of the military forts, in the waste piles, you know, in the mid-ponds mm -hmm. and so on and so forth, there's a lot of these stoneware beer bottles that came uh -huh. from England. Yeah. And it just seems improbable to me that they are shipping this beer over to Oklahoma and Kansas. And oh, but they were. They were shipping beer. Bass beer was really popular in Colorado in the 1860s. Um, bass. Bass. That's the reference I always see is to bass beer. I don't know why. But uh, they were shipping it. Um, it was at least oftentimes spoiled. Um, but if you are a soldier at Fort Garland, and you've been to Fort Garland, if you, if you haven't been to Fort Garland, Fort Garland is where it is because it has a commanding view for miles and miles in every direction. There's, in the San Luis Valley? Yes, it's at the head of the San Luis Valley. Um, right under 14,000 foot peaks. Anyone, anyone that was posted there must have thought they'd fallen off the edge of the Yeah. And uh, so, so if beer shows up, spoiled or not, there's always going to be some soldier who's like, eh, I'll take it. Uh. What about the shipping beer to India, putting all the hops in it? Would they do that for this beer? Um, so, no, I think is the answer to that. But I am, uh, there are English beer historians who I would defer to if they were in the room. Um, so Bass beer uh, is the beer, roughly, that we think of today when we think of drinking Bass, which is a uh, more malty, uh, amberish sort of beer. Um, they did dial up the hops to ship it to India. There's lots of debates about whether, you know, how apocryphal the story is of, of India pale ales actually being uh, a product of trying to, to ship them to India without spoiling. Um, the problem here seems to have been twofold. One, that hops were in the um, mid-1800s coming out of upstate New York exclusively in the New World. Um, and there wasn't a ton of them. Uh, secondly, that um, the years after 1840 were the beer boom in America, where um, beer replaces cider and then uh, rum and whiskey as Americans' drink of choice. But it's not just any beer. It's very specifically lager beer, which... Uh, probably came um, from Germany as soon as the clipper ships got fast enough in the 1840s to get a live yeast culture all the way across the Atlantic um, to, to Philadelphia is generally where the first lager beer um, is thought to have showed up. So you don't want to dump a lot of hops into it, even though um, the styles they were brewing, the styles of lagers they were brewing are more diverse than what we might think of as the you know light American lager today. Um, they're still a limit to how many hops you can put in a lager and, and have people want to drink it, especially when the lager's whole appeal is that it's light and crisp and refreshing at that time. Uh, these ales that were often spoiled and fruity tasting and uh, heavy and syrupy, the lagers were so popular precisely because they were consistent and light and refreshing. Um, and then you have had a question in the back for a while there. Okay. Two or? Yeah. Um, the beer museum, um, they're going to serve beer. Do you think they will serve some original recipes of, like, your earliest quarters of the earliest, you know, like, what people were drinking in Central City in 1961? So, and the second part of that question okay. is, would anyone like it? It's at room temperature. Mm-hmm. Good, good question. So, uh, question one: um, Can you guys hear over here? All right, then never mind. Uh, 
<laughs> you can repeat it for the audio. Okay, so uh, the beer museum, actually remind me, I got stuck on question two and, and what it would taste like. Um, but uh, question one was, uh, are they going to serve original recipes? Are they going to serve original recipes at the, the proposed beer museum in Golden? And if they do, will anybody like them? Um, so full disclosure, uh, Nathan Ritchie, who is the director of the Historical Society here, who I have a feeling many of you know, um, he and I have talked off and on about this uh, idea for uh, a while now. Um, I think it's a, a really interesting idea, and I um, am excited to see it uh, move forward and see how it develops. Um, I have urged him to try and find those historical recreation recipes. Um, and I think he can. I think there are enough brewers out there who are interested in the history of beer that um, in some cases, you know, the Tivoli recipe, the Tivoli Headless Lager recipe is actually um, apparently fairly close to what they originally brewed and, and uh, in other cases, brewers are interested in recreating those styles. In fact, George Washington's beer was recreated by a, a brewery in, in New York. Um, uh, so I think there is going to be ample opportunity to do that. Um, I refer you to Jason's beer drinking rule of thumb, number one, which I ended my uh, talk with here. Uh, beers that are advertised solely based on their age generally taste boring to us. Um, that's not to say that that's universal, um, but it is to say that in a world of uh, grapefruit sculpin and uh, you know the uh, new terrain saison and and uh, uh, you know Cascade IPAs from the Northwest, uh, that the modern beer drinker has gotten used to a flavor profile that is so much bigger than a beer drinker would have experienced a century ago, that my experience has been anytime um, someone's been serving up one of these uh, historic recipes, that people really appreciate it for the history of it, but they maybe have one or two, and then they switch to something that they know they like. Um, and I actually think that's, that's a great role for the museum to play. That, uh, you know, to un I think there's this sort of misunderstanding out there that before Prohibition was this wild world of exciting beers. Um, and while the lager styles that they were brewing before Prohibition exhibited a bigger range than um, you know, we saw in the 70s and 80s in America with lagers, um, it wasn't the freewheeling universe that we live in today when it comes to, to drinking craft beer. So um, I think it will be good. I think especially where, um, I don't know if, if the beer museum would kind of go this far back, but um, Dogfish Head has done a great job of brewing some ancient ales, and there are others out there who do it. And those are really interesting, because those are really beers that you kind of have to stretch your mind to think of as beer. Um, you know, the, the Egyptians um, paid a beer ration to pyramid builders, uh, and Dogfish Head recreated uh, as close as they could get uh, the recipe for the, for the beer that they were serving as a ration, and it was a a honey lavender uh, fermented something. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it actually it was great for me to taste it because you can understand how that could be currency. If, um, if you needed to drink something all day long that wasn't going to make you sick and you needed something that had a little bit of value that you could trade to other people at the end of the day in order to get bread or, or whatever you needed... Um, to taste that really helped me understand, you know, you just hear, the Egyptians paid for the pyramids with beer, and you're like, how did that work? Like, how are they so straight up the sides? That is, you know. Uh. But when you start to understand it's a 3% beer that tastes like honey, um, you know, you start to get a better appreciation for, for how that worked. And I think the same could be done with uh, uh, medieval beers, um, you know, famously... European monks brewed beer because it wasn't safe to drink the water. Um, you know, the doubles and triples and, and quads are referred to the strength of the beer, and the monks kept the strong stuff and, and brewed the uh, weak stuff for common consumption, and that's why, you know, kids could drink it um, and did drink it because it was safer than the water. 
Um, so you can understand how people drank beer all day long in, in medieval England, because uh, it was very low alcohol. Um, the same is true, actually, in colonial America. Um, you know, I have a feeling if we recreate green corn stock beer, it's going to check in at a, a pretty low ABV and the type of thing that you can drink while you're out in the fields uh, doing what you need to do. Um, so did that answer your question? All right. Dogfish is in um, New Hampshire. Delaware. Delaware. They're all the same. All right. So we have time for one more question if there is one. And if there's not, we can all just enjoy the rest of our beers and call it a very good night. Um, God, I should have an answer for that. Uh, I would recommend Google. <laughs> and if Google, if Google fails you, I would recommend getting in touch with me, and I'll put you in touch with the editor. Um, yeah, sorry. They, they just sent me a bunch of free ones, and I never bothered to look and see how, how you actually get them. That's right. So um, I do have a few cards on me, but uh, it's really easy to get a hold of me. It's jason.hanson, that's H-A-N-S-O-N, just like on the uh, you know, website um, for Golden Beer Talks, jason.hanson at state.co.us. Great. Um, Thank you, Jason. Thanks, everyone.